even when I do make mistakes, it's somehow held in a deeper appreciation that a human being can be vulnerable and fallible and not become all the way bad from that. And it's a kind of implicit, almost body sensation of something more easeful. And around the heart area, there's you know, some sense of breathability or non-congestion that is different from how I often felt growing up and in maybe the first 10 or 15 years of my meditation practice. I really felt like I had to get somewhere and sort of save myself. Kate Leela Wheeler was born in Oklahoma and raised in four South American countries. She graduated from Rice and Stanford and was for a time a lecturer of creative writing at Tufts University. She's written two books of her own fiction and edited three books for wisdom publications, two collections of talks by her late teacher, Sayada Upandita of Burma, and a collection of Buddhist short fiction. Kate has received prizes, fellowships, and grants for her writing from the Guggenheim Foundation, Radcliffe Institute, NEA, and others. In April of 2019, she was a Buddhist writer-in-residence at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Kate sat her first meditation retreat in 1977 and was empowered to teach by Spirit Rock and IMS in 2006. More recently, her Tibetan Lama, Za Keeling Rinpoche, invited her to offer Vajrayana attitudes in her teaching and instruct students in his system of seven relaxed mind meditations. Presently, she serves as a coordinator for the teacher training at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California, and is a member of their Teachers' Council. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemore. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. So, Kate, it's great to have you as a guest. I was listening to some of your Dharma talks on Dharma Seed, and there was this this one point that I thought was really fantastic. You were talking about the habitual patterns of the mind, which is, you know, a common uh, a common topic for for us in the Buddhist world. But you also went into this line of thinking where you said that it's it's important to remind ourselves of the virtuous nature and and the good that we do not to sort of allow us to think that we're better than or to stand over uh, other people but also to remind us of our own value just in where we are as human beings and you went on to talk about this negativity bias that has been showing up in a lot of the scientific research but also <laughs> just the research we do on the on the cushion right but that also we have virtue and I was wondering if you might start sharing a little bit about what that what that process is and and how that's helpful and and where you work with people on sort of exploring 
the virtue as it relates to the negativity bias? Well, in the four foundations of mindfulness, which is really such an important basic teaching uh, by the Buddha, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, one of the core aspects of what we're invited to be aware of is the state of our mind, you know, what's going on inside, let's say heart-mind, and whether it's in a state of, you know, hindrances or enlightenment factors. And looking at the enlightenment factors is really, it's very energizing because the mind actually likes feeling more open and more aware and awake. And say, if you look at how you feel when you're being present and aware, there are qualities in being present that are actually quite lovely. And if we start to notice those, then the mind will become more attracted to being aware and awake and present and start to recognize that there's there's really only this moment and that we can rest in it and come back to it. So it's almost like a type of um, demarcation of the meditation state to be aware of the enlightenment factors or what you would call that the positive qualities in the mind. The next thing I would say from the perspective of working both in a more traditional Theravada framework, which is where I was just speaking from, but also for the Mahayana, Vajrayana, and Dzogchen perspectives, all beings have Buddha nature, beings who have awareness um, are you know, potentially enlightened or have the seed of enlightenment or are you know, on resting in an ocean of enlightenment without knowing it, something like that. And I feel like the positive qualities and value of simply being alive are just important not to obscure both from the point of view of our internal sense of well-being on the most basic level and um, toward what liberation would be on the ultimate level. And what else would I say? There was one other thing that flitted through, but I can't. Uh, I can't grasp it again. It's like a little fish that went, <laughs> can't find it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, one thing, like perseverating on without stuff, like how the mind can really get into, especially if something is difficult or challenging, it's trying to find a solution, you know, but sometimes it can really go on and on if something is bothering us. Um, our mind starts to injure us maybe more than the original event. Um, so that's just something to watch out for and, and to wean ourselves from those habits which are very pronounced in most people and more pronounced in some than others. It's really good to have just a some memory that you're not always a jerk or something. <laughs> you know, maybe you were a jerk to someone or maybe you hurt someone's feelings or maybe someone's mad at you, but there's a lot bigger side to life than, than that. Um, yeah. Okay. So that I guess that's. Did anything come up for you while I was speaking that you want to follow into? I know that the reaction I had in myself, that sort of, I noticed in my body when I heard you saying that, was how uncomfortable I felt, almost in the sense of like, oh, wait a second, how am I going to sort of incorporate those places where I do, you know, and I do try to be a nice person, welcoming person, these sorts of things, um, just as 
just a practice in life, but then to bring that to the cushion and to try to discern, you know, uh, what is sort of building the ego and uh, what is actually just identifying part of being this larger sense of, um, Oh yeah, this is just a a virtue, like a great virtue of humanity, or a great virtue of the the experience of life, right? That, and so it was just a, this interesting moment where I know how well and how easy it is to go into those sort of habitual patterns of the mind. That's like I'm just a terrible <laughs> person, <laughs> or I did a terrible thing, and then to see that as like a you know trying to counter it with right i also engage in virtue and and how do i even talk to other people about being comfortable with that path and i'm wondering if maybe there was a a moment or a uh, an encounter you had where you were able to really see that as an important teaching for you or for others well, I feel like I've noticed in the last few years and maybe almost shocked by the feeling that when I return to a resting state um, of mind, I have a sense of, well, this is kind of a good person, you know, or that I can even consult my own being for what to do next, uh, either in life or not just whether to carry an umbrella or not, but what to say or something. And it doesn't mean that I, that, you know, this, this being isn't going to make some mistakes, but much of my practice in younger days was fueled by a feeling of, um, you know, according to the Buddhist schemas, I probably just came from some hell realm, I thought, or I would be going back there soon or, that was the way my psyche was mapping something. And whether that was an intuition about what realm I was in or some strange way that I took fundamentalist uh, attitudes in myself, it, was, it did correspond to a sense of kind of unworthiness or fear or trauma, you could even say. Like, um, as you mentioned in the bio, I moved around a lot when I was younger. So there was a lot of different instabilities and um, changes in my life that may have not made me certain that, you know, my attachments with other human beings were secure or anything like that, you know, that there were also great advantages in moving around so much when I was little and growing up. But without saying that I'm going to trace the origins of all of that, as my personal sharing on this podcast, I can say that it's been a great relief to just have a sense that even even when I do make mistakes, it's somehow held in a deeper appreciation that a human being can be vulnerable and fallible and not become all the way bad from that. Um, and it's a kind of implicit, almost body sensation um, of something more easeful. And around the heart area, there's, you know, some sense of breathability or non-congestion that um, is different from how I often felt growing up and in maybe the first 10 or 15 years of my meditation practice. I really felt like I had to get somewhere and sort of save myself. Um, anyway, so maybe that's a trajectory that 
happens on smaller levels for people every day. I'm not too concerned that my ego is going to overfeed on this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I, I think a lot of us who spend a lot of time with the practice or have given a lot of our lives to the practice, um, are really working on some issue or, you know, there's something that drives us because otherwise, you know, it's a lot of work. So, (laughs) you know, you're wrestling with a big question somehow. And for some people, there's quite a lot of suffering that has, that motivates them. And so I just, there was something in that, that really drew me to the, the idea of the virtue of who we are as well and how that's really also an important balance in the practice. I just, because I think a lot of us get stuck in that place of trying to get out of the negative thinking and we're, it's almost like we're trying so hard to get out of it. It's like reinforces it because it's, I got to get out of here. I'm here again, you know? So anyways. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, when um, I did, loving kindness meditation practice that looking at the good side of yourself and people is is indicated as a source of loving kindness it's one of the points to develop more kindness and i do notice that when my vision is attuned to the goodness of others and self it's it really is a nicer a nicer life like a you know dukkha is the word dukkha or suffering in buddhism is um etymologically in Pali, it's like a, a rough ride. Mm-hmm. It's a bad space. It's a shitty space to live in. And, um, you know, happiness or sukha is more like a having a better ride. And just on the very mundane, ordinary, experiential level, it's good to be able to see the goodness in people, even if they might be someone that you uh, don't trust in every way. But when the mind shuts down and gets contracted, that's kind of its own form of Mm-hmm. Um, greater equanimity about all the parts of who we are, I think, is is also a wisdom. It's a wisdom practice, but we have to have a, a balance between knowing maybe our vulnerabilities and ability to hurt other people or hurt ourselves. And um, that's, I think, that's a really strong motivator for my own practice, not to harm myself and others, or also maybe to be able to benefit um, each other. And you know. We don't just, I think we don't just practice out of wanting to elude suffering. Like I'm interested in the motivation for why people practice. I find it very curious why people are drawn to the Dharma. Is it only, I don't know if it's only suffering. It certainly didn't feel like suffering to me in the beginning, even though I had all these, you know, strong motivating forces. I also kind of felt like I had discovered something really important when I first started to practice that it was really made sense in some really deep way too. What do you think about that? Um. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, um, yeah, I I don't remember when I first, you know, I I don't know, I started, I guess around 1998 or something uh, in a serious way. And for me, it wasn't so much suffering as much as this great curiosity of um, what, what was there. I'd always been sort of drawn I believe to a sort of transcendental, intellectually a transcendental encounter, and um, I became to I, I came to believe that in my situation the Zen path would 
would bring me to that. And so it was really great curiosity that drove me and it was only once i was in the practice that i was like oh my god there's all this suffering here i, know. <laughs> I didn't even know it was part of it but uh but it was a twin a twin uh twin draw really yeah i think that's very similar in my own case finding out this whole wad of stuff was going on and you know there were cer- there were certain periods in practice when that became really obvious and kind of broke open in some ways and then has been there to work with ever since, like more available and out from underneath layers of, you know, repression or just trying to deal with it by, you know, non-meditational or non-dharma strategies like suppressing it or ignoring it or whatever, or pretending that it's not there, or I don't know what it is the mind does to cover up layers. I guess it just, go, it, you know, it kind of goes under the power of your pattern. If, if you're not there to see or wake up the pattern, like I was just coming up the stairs on the way to do this meeting and this little grumpy, you know, mood just floated over me and I saw, Oh, that's just a grumpy mood. And it didn't take me under kind of thing. And it really was, that's when it can be fun. If you are kind of there with present awareness and the awareness is stronger than whatever energy there is in the, um, you know, the obscuration or something. That's, I love that. And it definitely eggs me on to continue staying present. Um, I'm like, I, you know, normally I would have gotten caught by that loathsome little mood. You know? <laughs> so then one more thing I want to say is that um, oddly with, more of the enlightenment factors present or more of the sense of, you know, what's beautiful and possible in our mind. Um, We can see that it's not really about aspiring to have like a good meditation or a good state. It's not what we we practice being with everything. And we practice being what we are moment to moment and deepening into that is very important. And yet, it feels hard to get quite stable into opening into whatever's, you know, whatever's arising out of your karma from the past without a certain amount of kind of tranquility or openness or whatever those better qualities are. You almost can't handle the hard stuff without, um, you know, at least a veneer of that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't want to belabor the point too much, but it's it's sort of the goal of. Um, the goal of a life that has a sense of freedom in it certainly helps draw me forward there. Now you began freedom, freedom. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it was so funny. I was in another conversation, uh, podcast conversation. It might've been with your, your friend Shyla, um, who I said something and she was like, and she wanted to like correct what I said, just not correct it, but like add to it where she was like, yeah, but ultimately it's really about the path of liberation. That's what it's all about. Right. It's the path of liberation. And, um, and I think sometimes we get sort of stuck in this, a smaller, a smaller worldview. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like we're here to walk a path of liberation 
mm-hmm. which for me, ultimately, when I get back to that place is truly insp- an inspiring space and, in- and gives me courage for the journey. So. I like you saying it's a path of liberation, not a path to liberation, too. I think that's good to call it of. What does the discernment mean for you in that way? Well, path two is we'll be liberated oh. at some future date. Yeah. Path, path of is we're finding liberation in the moment or now. You know? um, and liberation is woven through all of the whole practice. It may not be just liberating oneself, but also liberating, you know, our relationship with, you know, everyone around us and, you know, maybe helping other people to feel liberated too, to whatever measure that is, whether it's like you were saying, feeling like a welcoming person or those things that it's, you know, it's a pretty big, can be a pretty big picture. Well, also on your website, you, you know, and I appreciated this also in your Dharma talks, where at the end of your Dharma talks, you were sort of inviting people to, you know, take what they needed and leave the rest if, if you, they didn't if they didn't resonate with what you said. But but on your website, you talked about, you have this line where you say uh, justice, spirituality, and trying to avert a climate catastrophe are inseparable. I work to help those spheres as well, and I think a lot of people come into meditation with the hope of having a calmer mind or a um, a more relaxed uh, experience. But the path of liberation includes, you know, all of this that's happening around us. Um, and, uh, well, I can understand why people don't want to do it because all of a sudden you start seeing a responsibility that it appears in the practice that is like, <laughs> well, it can be a lot. I mean, uh, trying to avert a climate catastrophe is inseparable from your spiritual life. It's, you know, it's quite a big statement. And so I don't know if you can say a little bit about how you can take such a big thing and and bring it to the cushion. Well, I'll, res- I'll resort to a Tibetan saying that I think is important, attributed to Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche, that my view is... I'm not saying I'm saying this, but the view can be as wide as the sky and my conduct is as fine as barley flour and sometimes maybe as small as a grain of flour, like, you know, turning off the light when you leave the room. And um, certainly if we think that all of our actions matter to ourself, like have an impact on our own quality of life, if that's the teaching of karma, that we also have impacts outside our own personal experience, uh, impacts on other people. And it's clear that sometimes I feel fine about something I said. Maybe I feel really good that I said that, you know, and it doesn't land the same way for someone else. And Mm -hmm. the difference between intention and impact is one interesting thing to explore. Like, you can't necessarily take full responsibility for you know, something that someone else took in through their own psychology, but you can listen to how they felt. And then if that affects your intention, um, you might need to, you know, either stay true to yourself or adapt where you were going based on their report. So I think that is something that it's, it's not beyond kind of a normal person's way of trying to be 
what you'd call like a good person. Um, I think, you know, and you can't always go there. You can't always have that. Um, but I think in our time, the quality of human consciousness and human activity is affecting the environment and determining the weather. Like, so as we care for our own minds, we might also, you know, make whatever attempts are within our range of, and within our life scale to contribute, you know, less pollution psychologically and physically to everyone. I picked up on it probably because, you know, I'm a very selfish being. And, um, I, you know, one of the things that I often say is that, you know, the solution to the climate crisis or the war crisis or whatever is... Um, it's actually uh, a spiritual solution and that we're not going to think our way out of it, um, that the actions and the thinking are derivative of the spiritual solution. So, um, you know, better <laughs> better get right with your spiritual situation. Uh, now, that's just, of course, I, I see the world that way. So I, mm-hmm. I find meditation and the, 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 the path of liberation as essential to the climate crisis because if you if you're not able to understand who you truly are then well the climate crisis is a result of not understanding who you truly are in in my opinion and the same the same um, systems that create climate problems um, or the same reasons why we have a hard time working with climate problems including things like renunciation and Mm. non-greed and you know not thinking that it doesn't matter if some other country gets inundated or you know all those people over there and not being willing to listen to you know valid evidence all of those things inflect most of the systems of injustice that happen like it's not like there's separate piles for everything and if you look deeper into it greed hatred and delusion is a really good description for you know what makes things hurt other people. Now, David Loy, who's a really good thinker, said, if you just think about it, um, you know, using some reflective understanding, if you had a whole bunch of enlightened people and a cruel system, there will be suffering, like I would say relatively enlightened good, you know, relatively awakened beings. Under a cruel system, there will be suffering. But if you have a really good system and a lot of unenlightened beings, then you'll also have suffering. So you could have both, like a bad system and unenlightened beings, and or you could have what would be optimal would be to work toward a system that reflects human values and uh, reality and the realities of nature and science, and also not making divisions according to what color your skin is or where you were born or whether you have an accent or you know whether your body looks different or your you know we love or all those things like what if we really looked at you know the goodness of beings or whether you have feathers or scales you know i mean you can't have we're not going to have necessarily utopia but there's also ways that um more egalitarian values will result in less suffering outwardly so so you're presently one of the I forget exactly how you phrased it, but the uh, you're coordinating. You're one of the coordinators for the the teacher training at Spirit Rock, which you know is 
got to be one of the larger teacher training programs, I would imagine, in the country. Um, maybe the world. And I think that I heard that this is the most, or you said that this is the most diverse uh, group of teachers that you're that has, has come through the program. Um, and I, you know, I'm just wondering if there's this moment that's happening in, in sort of contemporary American Buddhism. We're seeing these books by Larry Yang and then uh, sort of Radical Dharma by um, uh, Reverend Angel Cotto Williams and, and uh, Lama Rod. And um, just wondering if you can, if there's, if you are identifying a moment of, you know, where is American Buddhism? right now or maybe it's worldwide but certainly something happening here mm -hmm. i think worldwide is big but uh, worldwide it does seem like there is more inclusion of women mm -hmm. in traditional lineages and some struggles around that and in asia um it's really asian women it started off being like a threatening western idea in the perception of some of the traditional teachers that all these westerners are firing up women to want to be equal to men and you know they were going to reject that but it really seems that now it wasn't just a western idea right <laughs> so just to touch on just to touch on what's happening inside of buddhism on a larger scale um but in the let's say the spirit rock teacher training program which was really what your question was about it is 20 people um every four years and simultaneously insight meditation society is also training 20 people and there has was a complex story of why the trainings which were once overlapping and both centers collaborating to train 20 became each center training about 20 the spirit rock uh, teacher training is being run by myself and the other two coordinators are larry yang and gina sharp whose oh. idea was some time back um, to flip the normal proportions of what would be called a diversity inclusivity quotient in teacher training and like the two of them and i went through our four years together they were the only two people of color and everyone else was white which is normal you know in western u.s buddhist sanghas i guess most most sanghas not all right the teacher body and the combined insight lineages that are Insight Meditation and Spirit Rock have about 300 graduated teachers and only 10 of them self-identify as people of color. So Gina and Larry thought that they should flip this and have 18 POC and two white people in a training so the POC could feel more comfortable and less like a minority. And where we are in terms of the development of people's practice is that there's been 40 years of retreats in the West and Larry and Gina and other people of color have been really working to keep bringing more people and find money and get them to be able to do longer retreats. And um, so there were a bunch of people who were ready for this. So what we have is 20 of those people concurrently, IMS is training 20 more. Ours is a little more diverse. I'm the only um, cisgender straight white person in the room, which is, we all joke that I had to bring it. I know somebody had to bring it. So I'm going to, I'm in charge of being that person. That's pretty funny. <laughs> but everyone else is, you know, has some targeted vulnerable identity. So to just say that even, even as a female, which is sort of an inflicted, it's one of the 
intersectionalities, you could say, but still as a white person, I sort of felt like I owned Dharma space or I was one of, I was in a slightly unconscious ownership position, like it was okay for me to be there and to abdicate from whatever attachments to privilege um, to, or to begin to loosen those things or to see them has been a very liberating kind of not self, not greed, not anger practice that touches on what felt for me like deeply embedded things that I wouldn't have looked at otherwise. So it's felt very liberating and the sense of inclusion, compassion, trust, um, you know, interconnection and joy that, you know, all enlightenment factors that have arisen from that have been for me just tremendous. Um, it's really fantastic. And I don't know if I would have gotten to see those deeply implicit assumptions without specific attention onto um, the social realities. And you could say the Buddha went into those zones when setting up the monastic order, not according to caste and uh, letting women into the order and all of those things. There's a real argument that uh, really from the beginning there was um, attention to undoing privilege as part of Buddhist practice. There's recorded episodes in the monastic rules of the Buddha that, you know, that go back for quite a long time. I used to have in my mind when the Vinaya was sort of recorded, but let's say at the Buddha's time, there, was, there were protests by um, monastics who were of higher rank that they were being asked to bow to people of lower rank in the Sangha, that they should not have to bow to someone who's, who was a barber, Upali the barber, for example, was of a lower caste. So people were saying like, I don't wanna to bow to that guy. And the Buddha said, you're gonna to have to because he's been practicing longer than you. And that's what we're bowing to is practice. And if there's gonna to have to be an order of bowing, then you're gonna to bow to him. There was a really explicit attention to deconstructing a sense of privilege in more privileged monks. Does that make sense? Mm. People born with more sense of entitlement had to let it go. And so what do you think this is doing for the practice of Buddhism right now in the United States anyway? You know, for the people who do think that this is more of a political um, sort of reinforcement of identity instead of um, sort of helping us along the path of liberation. About the reinforcement of identity, that is a really big old, you know, mm, thing that gets dragged through this conversation from time to time. And what it feels like is a distraction from trying to understand that we can employ the Dharma to deconstruct internal oppression and internalized oppression, and that this could be something very good for everyone to look at and to include in our meditation practice. Like, how do we construct any kind of identity, um, whether it's the identity of someone who has the view that politics don't belong in the Dharma? <laughs> Or the other way around. Um, 
I think having grown up in Latin America and seeing, um, having known what it feels like to be an outsider, then that's what I feel is the point of all of this is that we shouldn't be creating outsiderhood unconsciously in our sanghas where, you know, there's like not any teachers of color. So then students of color won't be interested and people of color have a really interesting perspective on our culture and a lot to say about, um, you know, their own lives. I find it very interesting to listen to teachers who have these profound experiences of liberation, who know how to talk about finding dignity and resiliency when they're not being given, you know, a fair shake by the outer culture, that there's something really to learn from people of color for white people or for people who identify as white and to relinquish uh, the sense of centering our own experiences, I think very salutary. This is just talking about what's good for white people right now, because I'm thinking that, that that's sort of where the implicit critique comes from. If you talk to a person of color, there's no argument about why there should be more teachers of color or people of color in sanghas or more welcomingness or more understanding on the part of institutions and that about so this sort of goes to the point of what is, you know, what happens, um, what is empowerment, what is power in, in a sangha, and what's the healthy use of the power that, that teachers have and institutions have. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Kate Leela Wheeler encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting her website, Kate Wheeler, that's W-H-E-E-L-E-R.com, or you can find some of her writing, or on dharmaseed.org, which hosts the audio for many of her talks. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.